1: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, August 13th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show...
2: There's a possibility that we can get positive results very early on.
1: A coronavirus vaccine undergoes clinical trials in a Mississippi city. We examine what the trials will tell us about fighting the pandemic and how soon it could be available. Then the lieutenant governor reflects on the legislature's efforts in the shorted return to the Capitol. Plus, in today's book club, author Ace Atkins with his latest Quinn Colson crime novel, The Revelators. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A Mississippi clinic is taking part in groundbreaking research to find a vaccine for COVID-19. Hattiesburg Clinic is joining 88 other research locations nationwide in a study to test the effectiveness of a potential COVID-19 vaccine developed by the biotechnology company Moderna. The clinical trial aims to test 500 Mississippians and 30,000 people nationwide over the coming months. Dr. Rambod Rubash is principal investigator for MediSync Clinical Research at Hattiesburg Clinic. He shares more about the clinic's role in the trials with our Kobe Vance.
2: Vaccines carry um, the genetic material to um, replicate what's essentially an inactivated version of the pathogen that we're trying to get immunity against. And this particular vaccine is using a section of the genetic code called messenger RNA or mRNA. And this uh, section of genetic code is specifically coding for the spike protein that clearly distinguishes the coronavirus. The second thing that makes this vaccine unique is the delivery vehicle. What I mean by that is in this particular vaccine, this company has created what's called... Um, lipid nanoparticles, essentially a fatty glob that is manufacturable, much easier to manufacture than deactivating a virus, and that's what's carrying the genetic material that uh, our body will design an immune response to. So it's a very unique vaccine, um, the likes of which we've never had before, um, really, ever.
3: How has participation been in this clinical study um, in, at the Hattiesburg Clinic?
2: Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, I I highly uh, suspect that we will turn away more people than we actually enroll. Uh, I've never been involved with a study that's been this popular, uh, probably uh, for obvious reasons. Um, Most people um, don't qualify for most clinical trials, whereas most everybody uh, is susceptible to this uh, virus and and qualify. So there's one reason there, um, but the other is, is just the timeliness. So the... The popularity, for lack of a better word, in terms of clinical trial participants, has been astonishing to me.
3: And so, um, so what are y'all looking for as far as like um, people to participate? Um, is there like a specific uh, age group or age range that y'all are looking for?
2: Yeah, so um uh, every study has what are called inclusion and exclusion criteria. This particular uh trial is looking for adults and um so this is not a pediatric trial, so 18 and above and generally healthy adults, but primarily what we're looking for are people that are high risk for developing COVID. So these are people either by um uh, uh, by the, the uh, factors associated with where they work or where they live are at higher risk. So this, this would include healthcare workers, um, transit workers, uh, grocery store workers, um, pretty soon teachers will be uh, similarly high risk. And, and it even includes um, people that are just by way of lifestyle high risk so if you're young and and healthy and uh not masking and and you know uh, living in in dormitory housing and going to bars you would be at high risk for developing covid you would be an ideal candidate for this trial we also um are looking for people that uh are are at high risk because uh they live in, say, uh, military housing or nursing homes, and then, of course, um, people with uh, medical illnesses that are at higher risk for complications are also going to be enrolled in this trial, provided that their medical um, complications are stable. So uh, being a diabetic, per se, does not exclude you from this trial um, as long as your diabetes is stable, but primarily what we're looking for are healthy adults who are at high risk for developing the illness.
3: What's the process look like of carrying the study out? Does somebody have to come in and say, okay, well, I've got the virus or I don't have the virus? Um,
2: y- almost. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. It's a, a bit of a complicated answer. So um, the first uh, step in the process is for people either to contact uh, the clinical research um, site uh, through our, either our website or uh, calling us and telling us they want to be involved. And then they're screened for whether they meet the inclusion um, and exclusion criteria. Our clinical research team will bring you into the clinic and make sure, one, you understand exactly what's involved, followed by making sure that you don't act actively have illness, including, uh, COVID we do a physical exam and we go over, um, again, inclusion exclusion criteria. And after all of that is done, um, you are randomized to either getting the placebo or the clinical trial medication in this case, a vaccine. And, and then you receive your first vaccine that you're educated on a diary, electronic diary, um, uh, that we ask participants to um, include their symptoms following injection and for the days in between, and then they have multiple visits back to the clinic. So there's a second dose 28 days after the first dose. Um, There's multiple e-diary check-ins. There are a total of seven actual clinical Uh, site visits that participants um, will actually come to the research site over the course of this two year trial. It's important to note that it is a two year trial uh, by design. And uh, that's the the basic logistics.
3: Everybody's big question is when is the vaccine going to be ready? Um, I know that's a very complicated answer. and You said possibly two years out. Um, But we've heard health officials say this past week that life probably won't return to normal until after we see a vaccine.
4: Yeah,
2: so let me clarify that, and I think that is the million-dollar question. As I was alluding to, this trial is, by design, uh, meant to be a two-year trial. So if this were um, any other vaccine trial, more often than not, it would go the entire two-year course um, before it w- it would be stopped and uh, deemed um, remarkably positive or remarkably negative, Um But in this particular uh, instance, because virtually every human being is susceptible to this illness because it's a brand-new novel illness, there's a possibility that we can get positive results very early on. It is conceivable that within a few months, we can have so many people on the placebo arm get this illness in contrast to very few people on the um, trial arm not getting this illness, that the um, ethical body that governs human clinical trials called the Institutional Review Board can say, okay, stop. It is time to end this study because we have enough good data to say it's no longer ethical to have a placebo arm. If that happens, then you can stop this phase three trial and start giving vaccines out. Now, um, it probably won't be disseminated population-wide until we get more phase three data in regards to safety um, this is in stark contrast to what's going on in Russia which is essentially they skipped phase three trials and are giving it to their um, citizens and essentially conducting the phase three trial on their citizens uh, citizenry at large so we're not doing it that way here in the US
1: Dr. Rambod Rubash is principal investigator for MediSync Clinical Research at Hattiesburg Clinic. He adds the technology being utilized to create this vaccine is scalable, which could result in quicker manufacturing if proven effective in clinical trials. Coming up, the lieutenant governor reflects on the legislature's efforts in the shortened return to the Capitol. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
3: Allison Walker, the Lady Auto Mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.
1: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. It has been an unusual first legislative session for first-term Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. The coronavirus shut down the Capitol in March during the early days of the pandemic, putting a halt in the legislative calendar. Then came a clash with Governor Tate Reeves over which branch of state government would carry the power to appropriate over a billion dollars in CARES Act relief funds. The summer months saw lawmakers vote to suspend rules in order to introduce a bill to retire the 1894. Four state flag. Shortly after Hoseman and at least thirty other lawmakers contracted COVID nineteen. This week, legislative leaders, including Hosman, called members of both chambers back to do something not done since two thousand two: override a governor's veto. The lieutenant governor reflects on the two days back at the Capitol with our Desiree Fraser.
5: First thing that the Senate did was to increase for small businesses from 1500 to $3,500 their base allocation amount. And then we also reduced where it wouldn't be offset by another uh, contribution that we had made, a distribution we had made. So some businesses can get up to $4,500. And we, we believe that that will significantly help restaurants and small businesses in Mississippi stay afloat here while we're going through this pandemic for a longer time than anticipated. The second thing, of course, was uh, our teachers deserve to have a budget. And we discovered that these EB cards that teachers get so that they can actually buy classroom supplies were not being issued. And further, the state law required on August the 15th they're supposed to have a a balanced budget for each school district. Well, that was impossible with the governor's veto. So we came in and overrode the governor's veto. The Senate did 41 to 1, and the House did as, as well. And I will tell you this. One thing they don't need to worry about right now is whether they're going to get paid or not. And uh, our uh we should not have been in this position of, of being unstable in their compensation when uh that did not have to occur. So there are a lot of things that were worrying them and worrying me. And one of them doesn't need to be that we don't have uh, 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 an effective uh, balance and a way to pay all of our teachers and give them their money they need to, for classroom supplies and others.
4: Um, the Department of Marine Resources is um, waiting on its budget. Where does that stand?
5: The last, uh, as of this morning, uh, the uh, Senate sent down to the House a uh, <clears throat> a proposed uh conference report uh, providing for an advisory council of three senators and three house members that would uh, meet with uh, Joe Sprague and DMR and I guess the governor's representatives as well and go over all of these proposals with a view towards um, allowing them knowledge about what was going on and what was coming in versus just showing up here and them asking for a dollar amount and uh, the. The last offer, I think, was rejected by the House today, and so we do not, as of this minute, have a uh, budget for the Department of Marine Resources.
4: Do you know what the hang-up is on it?
5: Well, the, the House position is they would like to pick every one of these. There's something called Go Mesa, which is mineral rights that the state has allocated for offshore drilling rights from the United States government, and the governor just spent it as whatever the governor thought with that amount of money. And the um, Senate's position is that the governor should be able to continue to go through the process of having uh, a DMR review the process, MDA, Environmental Protection Agency, and all of those government agencies review the various proposals and make sure that they meet all of the Go Mesa requirements, which has to do with water quality and those kinds of things. And then the governor be able to allocate the funds. The House position is that the House should be involved and should involved in picking those particular projects. So um, that's a, a summary about where we are, I think.
4: You think they're going to pull it out soon, have a meeting of the minds?
5: Yes, if we come back in, we've got other issues that I'm working on today. Um, we're, we're desperately, I am desperately concerned about the availability of ICU units and also staffing of our ICU units in Mississippi. I'm worried that uh, if this virus continues at its current level and we have a a normal flu season, we won't have enough ICU beds for our citizens. And I'm also very concerned about the fact we don't have enough nurses. This is a very skilled position to be in an ICU treating these patients that have to be turned uh, like every couple of hours, uh, that are on ventilators uh, and all kinds of other tubes. It is a very specialized process, and Mississippi um, was, I, I think, was really challenged in in keeping all of these um, all of these nurses here and and working. But now uh, we're running about 800 beds when we would normally be running about 300 beds. So we really have taxed uh, these caregivers, and it, it is it's. Very challenging, and we and we have been working today on solutions that may be available to have some money allocated for those.
4: Would it mean bringing in medical professionals from other states? Or it
5: could it could be some of these nurses do are in, uh are leased or hired on short term basis. That should, that could be one of the solutions. Uh, we have other nurses that. Uh, we want, may want to um, hopefully move from uh, possibly being a surgical nurse to, to an emergency room nurse or an ICU nurse. Um, we, um, we, as there are several alternatives being discussed about that. And then the capacity, we need to make sure we've got enough rooms, uh, which if we had a normal flu season, we, we would be 100% full.
4: Is there anything that you'd like to share that I didn't ask?
5: Well, we, we did make progress today, and we have made a lot of progress in Mississippi. We have straightened out the Driver's License Bureau. We have reorganized, like the State Fair Commissioner, put it under the uh, uh, Secretary of Agriculture. We, have, we put $55 million in a new board, a uh, seven-person board, that will be allocating not only those funds but additional monies in addition to that to make sure that we're educating our workforce going forward. We, we think there could be as much as a third to 40% of them won't go back to the same job they had. So it was really important to us that we have some job training skills available for them. We protected all our healthcare workers from frivolous lawsuits so that we had a number of different things that were positive positive uh at this particular legislative session, we passed Carly's Law, which prohibits future contact by sex offenders with, uh, with their victim, unless the court, court orders them to do that. Uh, so we had, we had a number of different things that were positive about, about Mississippi and about, that went on in the session that weren't as big a deal as, as some of the things we're looking at
4: now. Lieutenant Governor Hoseman, thank you so much for uh, giving us an overview of what the legislature has been doing and is and continues
1: to do uh, for Mississippians. Thank you.
5: Thank you. We appreciate the call.
1: Lawmakers adjourned without a budget for the Department of Marine Resources. The legislature reserved a handful of dates to to return on or before October 5th to finalize CARES Act spending. Coming up in today's book club, author Ace Atkins with his latest Quinn Colson crime novel, The Revelators. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
2: Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker.
0: Slowly, we started, you know, picking these turtles up and saving them. I'll
2: stop traffic, grab one out of the road.
0: And then our friends found out, and our vet would call us.
2: Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker.
0: We are now a full-fledged, non turtle rescue.
2: You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio, or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast.
1: This is Mississippi Edition on MTB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Oxford, Mississippi author Ace Atkins offers a new Quinn Coulson novel. The Revelators pits the Mississippi Sheriff against a criminal syndicate that has ravaged his community and tried to have him killed. But as Atkins tells us, it isn't only readers who have taken notice of his most notable character.
0: We were very uh pleased to, to be able to announce the news that HBO has bought the rights to all 10 Quinn Coulson books. But of course, right now during the pandemic, we're kind of in a holding pattern as far as production. But I'm hoping production will resume towards the end of the year and maybe we can get started on something.
1: Will this be presented as a limited series with the 10 books?
0: The idea of it is right now is kind of a five-year plan. That's the, the grand plan. And every season would be kind of a combination of two different books. So they would go in sequence. The first stories would be uh, from my book, The Ranger, and then it would go on up to my current book, which is The Revelators, and that would be kind of the cap for the series. So that's that's the grand plan as of, of summer 2020.
1: Well, let's move on to The Revelators. It is your 10th Quinn Coulson novel. What do people need to know about Quinn Colson and do they need to read from number one to number 10 in order?
0: I think you can read the books out of sequence and still enjoy them, but I think you get hopefully more enjoyment by reading them in order, because there are events that do link up to uh, to other books, and that's really why HBO was thinking about doing this production as far as the sequence of the novels. But as far as Quinn Coulson, I hope what he represents is kind of a decent guy in very shifting moral times. He's the sheriff of a small county in Mississippi. He's a former army guy, and he's essentially a guy who's come home after being away for 10 years in the service, trying to make his backyard a better place, trying to make his own community clean and safe and free of corruption and free of criminal behavior. I think really overall what I hope this series is about is just doing the right thing and standing up to hypocrisy and standing up to racism and standing up to corruption i think quinn colson i think represents the best of what i like about the south and the best of what i like about mississippi
1: i love in this book that his nemesis is a ruthless woman <laughs> tell us about her
0: she's a uh character who's been in in at least five of the books and her name's fanny hathcock and she is involved in the the sex trade in in north mississippi and memphis and She's someone who is based on two historic figures, uh, one of them most notably a woman named Louis, Louise Hathcock, who um, was tied in with the, the Buford-Pusser affair and, uh, that, that we know from Walking Tall, the true-life character. And so I wanted to do a really somewhat faithful version to Louise Hathcock running the, the industry, only a modern character, and that's, that's where uh, Fanny came from.
1: How many of the characters have a thread through all of the books or most of the books?
0: most of them, I mean, the one of the things that that I wanted to do is I never wanted to write books that were these just standalone adventures or, you know, just macho-driven, you know, gunplay, that kind of stuff. That never interested me. What was interesting to me about writing these books and writing these 10 years on, and I think why people continue to, um, you know, to to gravitate towards them, which is fortunate for me to be able to do this 10 years in, but is to co- to create a community that changes with the times. And... I think this book is certainly true to what is happening in mississippi in 2020 and the same thing that when i wrote the ranger 10 years ago was true to mississippi in 2010 and people come people go uh people go to jail people you know people just get old and they die there are things that have happened and i hope this is a real kind of living breathing community um that that's true for the times here in in mississippi
1: you are most likely the most prolific writer in Mississippi. You've written 26 books, and your career didn't start when you were 15 years old or 20 years old.
0: (laughs) Who told you that? It was was much younger, much younger.
1: What motivates you?
0: I come from the background of being a newspaper reporter, and I like to write about what's happening in the world. I think this is kind of an offshoot of covering the news. It's, It's taking the news and then really trying to put a um, you know, human story along with it so we get to know these characters. And so that's what motivates me. I mean, last year, about this time, I'm writing this stuff in such of the moment that I was actually writing The Revelators at this time last year. And this is when the, the poultry plant raids happened across Mississippi with over 600 undocumented workers rounded up and with kids being left behind. And we're still a year in looking to see people that were um, you know, executives at those plants being prosecuted. And that, I thought that was such an injustice that I had to write about it. So I think it's really the headlines that motivate me and motivate me to tell these stories and hopefully to reach people beyond Mississippi and beyond the South to kind of understand this area.
1: The Revelators is the 10th Quinn Colson novel, and we've been speaking with the author, Ace Atkins. Ace, thank you so much, as always. Thanks, Karen. Always a pleasure.